so glad you could be with us and our leadership. We're just so grateful uh, to be in the house of God today. Today is Palm Sunday, and uh, I was thinking about the last few weeks. Um, I was uh, out of the pulpit for about three weeks. We had a bunch of great speakers come in here and some guests. And one of the things we do as a kind of unspoken rule or tradition is we show honor where honor is due, and so we'll, we'll respect and we'll acknowledge the gift uh, on different people to uh, kind of speak God's word to us. And, and um, I was thinking, you know, a lot of times we give even a standing ovation. But, you know, today is Palm Sunday. Today we celebrate Jesus coming in, you know, to the holy city. And, you know, it was, you know, at, at this particular time people were uh, flocking to him. And I just thought, you know, instead of honoring some, some person, what maybe we honor the most important person that we could possibly honor. So would you do me a favor? Would you just put your worship guys down for a second? Let's stand to our feet and let's just give God an incredible hand clap. Let's honor him. Let's honor Jesus on Palm Sunday. Let's show him our love. Let's tell him what we think about him. We put you first, Jesus. You're the most important guest. You're, you're the ultimate savior. You're my redeemer. You're my Lord. We put you in the highest place. The Bible says if we lift Jesus high, he'll draw all men unto himself. And we lift Jesus high at Connect Community Church. Come on, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's how we do. That's how we do. Amen. Amen. Yes. 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 All right, that's how we roll. Good job, everybody. Good job, man. That's how we ought to, that's how we ought to introduce the most important guest of all. Amen? Amen. Well, listen, um, for those of you who are kind of new to Connect, we teach in series, and we, we started a series last week entitled Four Cups, and we're doing it over six weeks, and that's totally confusing. And I'll explain that to you, and it'll make sense in a little while. But uh, one of the things that kind of uh, kick-started this whole series was the notion or the idea that I think all of you believe, but you may not actually have put words to it or a sentence to it or any kind of traction behind it, but that, that is that we're all on a journey. We're all on a spiritual journey. Like, we are actually, you know, spiritual beings having a human experience. We're actually eternal people. We're actually going to have an eternity somewhere with someone. And so this journey that we're on... Um, it has stages and steps to it, and it's kind, of a, it's kind of a process. And though our relationship with God can be instigated and, and, and jump-started by a, a momentary decision, in other words, in a second, you can make it a decision in your heart that can literally change the destination of your life. Did you get what I just said? In a second, destination changed, just like that, by some decision that you made in your heart. But the change in your life here and now, in the temporal, in the temporary assignment we call life, that's a process. It's not a program. It's not an event. It's a multiplicity of experiences. It's, we're the sum total of our relationships, of our, of our decisions, and of our experiences. And, and so all those things are part of this journey that we're in called life. Amen? And on that journey that we go on, underneath that, there's there's, there's this, Christians, for example, we, we know that we, we need to love God, you know, we know the great commandment, love God with all your heart, strength, soul, and might, we know that, and, and we know that, you know, God's church is important, and obviously we need to come to, ch come to church, a lot of you guys come to church, it's pretty obvious, so that's good, so we love God, we love church, but, but somehow underneath that, there's, there's this, there's this um, drive, this motivation, there's got to be more, and that's kind of some of the the, the premise behind the series is that there's got to be more. That when I'm on this journey of life, that there's got to be more than just, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. What about you? 
you know, more than kumbayas and Doritos by the fire. There's got to be more than that. And I want you to know that there is, and that that, that, is what, that that is what Connect desperately pursues is more. And if you don't want more of God, this probably isn't the right church for you, to be honest with you, because we're just going to get after it. We want more of what God has for us, and we want to be able to progress on our journey and in our faith. Can I have an amen out there? Or an oh me, whatever works for you, okay? So Last week, we kind of started to unveil and unpack what are these four cups all about, kind of what, and, 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 and aligned with, synonymous with these um, four cups were these four promises, these four principles, these kind of keys that actually uh, predate where we're at now, predate Christ. They're not just AD, they're BC. They were back all the way in the Old Testament, and they, they, they are un, unveiled in a relationship between God and his people, Israel. And these four principles surface in his relationship with them. And anything you see, by the way, in the Old Testament is, a, is kind of a, it's like types and shadows. If you've ever studied anything theologically, there's, there's sometimes these things that are concealed and contained there that are revealed and explained over here in the New Testament. So the best way to understand something that's happening in the past is through the lens of the New Covenant, the New Testament. We have been given a wonderful blessing in our Christian experiences that we have the New Testament, we have the New Covenant because of Christ. And because of what Christ did, we can understand what's happened in the past better. But if you start reading in Genesis, Exodus, by the time you get to Leviticus and you start studying skin diseases, you're going to be out. You're going to bail. You're going to bail. You're going to need some help on that. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And so anyway, there's these four key progressions. And, and, and in order to receive all God has for us, these ideas were mentioned in the book of Exodus. And these principles that are there in the Old Testament are unconditional. They are eternal. They weren't just for Israel and the people of God then. They're actually for us today. And they've been there all along, all through the Old Testament Although unfulfilled, in the New Testament, we see it in the Gospels. We see it in the Great Commission, these four things in the Great Commission. We see them in the book of Acts. They're everywhere. But we're going to study them where they were first revealed in the beginning. And they're known to us through Jewish tradition as what's called the four I wills. Everybody say I will. And so the Jews would celebrate these four I wills at Passover every single year, and they would read from a portion of scripture from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, and they would say these four I wills, and as they said these four I wills, they would take a cup, a cup of wine, during the Passover experience, and they would drink of the cup, say the I will, and then they would, they would do another cup, say the I will, do another cup, say the I will, do another cup, say an I will. How many know by the fourth cup, everybody's feeling pretty good? Okay, so that's, these, were, these were parties, all right? So anyway, let me read this to you from Exodus 6, verse 6 and following. It says this. Now, I want you to put yourself in the story. So when you see Israel or Hebrews, put the church, put Christians in the story. Because again, this is a foreshadowing of what was to come. This is something concealed and contained that is revealed and explained and part of our experience today. It says, therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Okay, so here's the first promise the first and the first cup associated with this promise so as they're having passover they would read this first i will i will bring you out it's talking about freedom here the first thing is god is saying to them i can't do anything with you until i kind of relocate you 
Not relocate you physically, but I relocate you spiritually. This isn't about your destination. This is more about your destiny. I'm trying to do something through you, but in order for me to start this process, I've got to get you out of Egypt. I've got to save you from the consequence of being a slave. You're no longer a slave. I want to get you out of slavery. Does that make sense to everybody out there? And so then the second Second, I will, is I will free you. I will free you. And this is, this is, again, associated with the second cup. So where they're having this Seder supper, this, this Passover meal, they bring up the second cup. They quote the second I will. Now, this I will free you. First of all, let me just say this. This can't happen. The second cup can't happen until you've had the first cup. Okay, you cannot experience the I will free you until you have been, you've gotten the salvation part worked out. You can't, until you get out of Egypt. Okay, you can't get Egypt out of you until you get out of Egypt. Is everybody tracking with me? We talked about this last week. Hopefully you did. And so this, this, the first work is in an instant. The second cup is a process where you're working through stuff. You're working through your issues. How many know all God's children got issues, right? That's what we say around here all the time. Turn to your neighbor and say, you got issues. Turn to your second choice. Say, you didn't get away with this. You got issues too. All God's kids got issues. Because if you don't think you got an issue, then that's your issue. Okay, we got it. All right. So this particular step in the process, in the journey of our experience as a Christian, theologically for all those people that like this stuff, is known as regeneration. Regeneration. In other words, a scripture in Philippians says, we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, I'm saved, but I'm also being saved. I'm being changed more and more into his likeness. 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18 says, when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. They can suddenly see. I can see clearly now the rain is gone. Anyway. And then it goes on and it says, We're being transformed more and more and more into his likeness in an ever-increasing glory. That means it's happening little by little by little by little. And the person that's in this particular cup, in this stage in the journey, is saying, I'm not where I want to be, but praise the Lord, I'm not where I used to be. It's a process. And many people are in this cup. In fact, most of the people probably in this room are in this second step in our spiritual journey, this second cup. I will free you. We're in the process of being free and working things out in our lives, and that's great. We're being free from being slaves, and, and we're being free from habits and addictions and, and all the issues that are going on in our life. That's a process, okay? But here's the third cup. The third cup is I will redeem you. Everybody say redeem. Now, many people, most people, get stuck in the second cup. We're, we're, still, we're still working through our issues year after year after year. I call them Christian lint pickers. Lint pickers. We're just like, oh, my gosh, there's just so many problems. Oh, my gosh, there's another one. There's another one. And we just, we spend the rest of our life working on ourselves or the gerbil, you know, in the treadmill Christianity. You know, I'm just trying to work it out. Are you getting anywhere? No. You're just going in circles and circles, and you're working real hard on who? On you, yourself, you, me, myself, and I, spending our whole life in that. Most Christians are in this place. Listen to this. 87% of Christians in America don't experience the redeem cup. Here's what that means. Redeem means to take people back to their original intent. God did not create Israel to be slaves, 
That was not his original plan. His original plan for Israel was to raise them or elevate them to be uh, the the light for the rest of the world. He was going to take them out of Egypt, which was the most powerful nation in the world at that particular time, and make a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that was not known ever and deliver them from that nation, and suddenly they were elevated to the most powerful nation in the world. They weren't to be like all the other people groups of the world and have a king. They were to serve the one true king, God. They were supposed to be different than a peculiar people, an extraordinary people who know and show forth the praises of him, 1 Peter 2, 9, called out of darkness into his marvelous light. They were going to be different. That's what his plan was from the beginning. He wanted to redeem them for that purpose. And it's the same thing that he wants to do to you and me. He wants to bring us back to his original intent. He has a purpose for you that he created in advance for you to do even before you came to be. Ephesians 2.10 says we are his workmanship. I'm preaching and I'm just five minutes in. He created us as his masterpiece, his workmanship, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So he created you to do something even before you came to be. So he's trying to bring you back to what he created you to do. But first he has to get you out of Egypt. Then he has to get Egypt out of you. And then he's going to put you back to what he created you to do. Are you getting something out of this? But 87% of the body of Christ doesn't know what that unique purpose, gift, plan, purpose is. What if, parallel, the body of Christ to my physical body, what if the parts of my body didn't know what they were created to do? What if this hand didn't know, what if it was just doing whatever the heck it wanted? You're like, you know, what if it was, be a problem? What if my mouth just said whatever it wanted? Some, some of y'all's mouth does, sometimes mine does. It makes a mess, doesn't it? What if the organs did whatever they wanted? What if they were in the wrong places? What if my intestinal tract didn't work? What? Oh, he just said that. It'd be a mess. And, and God is saying basically that that's what the body of Christ is like. It's dysfunctional. It's a mess. It's not operating and functioning the way it should because it's not experienced the third cup, which is redemption. Redemption. Are you guys tracking out there? This is good. I'm telling you. And how does he want to redeem us? It says in Exodus 6, with an outstretched arm. In other words, he wants to take his hand right down into your mess. The Bible says he reaches down and pulls you out in the book of Psalms to make you great to make you great, to do something great through you, and with mighty acts of judgment. That means that he knows that there's an enemy that, trust me, whether you believe it or not, I don't care, but you're here and I got the mic. Let me just tell you something. There's an enemy who wants to oppose you. John 10, 10 says, wants to kill, steal, and destroy. He's going to try to get in. He is not omniscient, but he's intelligent, and so he'll try to get right in your path and stop whatever God's trying to do. He can see the signs. I got another song that's coming in my head, but I'll resist singing it right now. Thank you. He helped me out. So he can see the signs, and so he, he lines himself up to get in the way and thwart the plan of God. And that's why God sent his son, Jesus, into the world to destroy the works of the evil one. So that you can say, greater is he who's in me than he who is in the world, and overcome, which he's called you to do in accordance with Romans 8.37. Amen? Amen? And so that's what he's trying to do in this third cup. And then the last thing he says, I'll take you as my own people. And, and so th- this is the cool part. The first three cups, which again, coordinate with these promises, are all about you. The first one is I'm, I'm just trying to free you, get you out of Egypt. Now I'm trying to get Egypt out of you, you, you. And the third one, I will redeem you. Three yous. The fourth one is not about a person, it's about a people. And this is the secret sauce to life. 
This is where, this is where we, many of us miss it. This is where we find fulfillment, significance, is it's not just you. When you look at anything that's done great on the planet Earth, it's not done through a person, it's done through a people. It's through a people. And so God always wants to attach you, connect you. I love that word. He wants to connect you with people, get you on a team, get you in a family, get you a part of a church. Because the Bible says in the New Testament, it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known. In other words, the, the distribution system, the ambulances, and the newspaper delivery system is through a church. It's through a people, not just through a person. Oh, this is some really good preaching. I'm going to amen myself. I hope you guys are getting this. This is so, I love this stuff because it makes so much sense to me, and I pray it makes so much sense to you. And so when you get to this place, it says, then you'll know that I'm the Lord your God. It's like, then you'll know. You're like, oh, now I get it. You'll have an aha moment when you're part of a people. When my hand is connected to the rest of my body, everything makes sense because the circulation, I find purpose, I find significance, I find, you know, uh, connectivity and, and, and the warmth and the lifeblood of the body is when I'm connected, not when I'm disconnected. That's just weird. That's just the Adams Family guy. <laughs> anyway, some of you guys are getting that. All right? So here's the message. That's creepy. So here's the message today, all right? God decided not to just go, that's what I want to tell you, spit, spew, spray that. No, he puts it all inside a picture. He puts this whole message inside a metaphor. He puts it all inside a sacrament known as Passover. This whole thing that I'm talking about, he puts all this whole what and why inside an experience known as Passover. But what's the connection between these promises and this Passover thing? In order to understand the connection, you first have to understand a little bit about Passover and how it came about. So can I give you a little history if anybody's still interested? Is everybody, and I'm not trying to insult your intelligence because some of you guys may know this, but some of you guys may not know this, and this may help you. So I'm going to go back, and then I'm going to go forward. So if you go all the way back to, say, the life of Joseph, Joseph's life manifests in Genesis 39 through Genesis 50. Joseph was an interesting chap who got a vision from God that everybody was going to bow down and serve him, and he was going to be great, and he didn't handle that so well, and so his brothers wanted to kill him, and they put him in a pit. And then he went in a pit, and then he got out of that, and he went into prison. And then he got out of that and then he got into Potiphar's house and he got in trouble there and then he got out of that and before you know it he's in the palace and he's second in command of the most powerful nation in the world with the signet ring of the king can call the shots and all of a sudden the fulfillment of what God had showed him in the beginning, the promise that he had beginning, begins to come to pass. And there's an entire world that is in hunger. Nations don't know what they're going to do. There's famine. And God gave Joseph a plan for what was supposed to happen. This is such an awesome story. I love this particular story. And so the people start coming to him from all over the place, including his own family. And, 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 and fast forward 400 years. So I'm going to move quick. <laughs> and so Joseph in the relationship with Pharaoh, which was great. Now Joseph's gone. The Pharaohs that followed didn't have the same kind of uh, opinion about the people of the world, in particular the Hebrews. The Hebrews or the Israelites were growing like crazy. I mean, they, 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 they loved each other. They were having babies all the time. And so in Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh's upset about that. He's 
threatened by that, very threatened by these Hebrews. And he basically puts out an edict to the midwives saying, anytime a Hebrew mother has a child, I want you to kill it and I want you to throw it in the river. And all the midwives said, no way, Jose, we're not going to do it. And they stood up, they gave Pharaoh the Heisman, they said, no way, Jose, that's not going to happen, which is pretty strong and pretty bold against a Pharaoh. So then Pharaoh then tells his, his soldiers, then you do it. And so they start killing babies and put them in the river. Well, Moses is born during this time. Everybody knows Moses. You know what I mean? Moses was this incredible leader, but it didn't start that way. And so Moses is born. His mom's not going to have that. So she, she makes a basket. She puts her baby in the basket, puts it on the river. And it just so happens that that baby in that basket show up at Pharaoh's daughter's oceanfront estate. She's out there, you know, splish splash, taking a bath or whatever she's doing, and she sees the baby. That's a song too, but I won't do it. And so she takes the baby out, and she decides, she falls in love with this child, has this incredible, almost like supernatural affinity for somebody who's not her own. She decides to raise this child as her own, as her son, and uh, she's raised in Egypt's household under the king's uh, leadership, and eventually... um, Things progress. Moses comes to a place in his life later on where um, he doesn't know at first that he's a Hebrew, but some stuff starts going on in his life, and he starts getting some stir- stirrings. And, and one time he sees a, uh, a slave being, being beaten, and he's upset about it. And so he kills an Egyptian uh, 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 slave master. And as a result of that crime, he was eventually exiled from his own uh, country, Egypt, and he's, he goes off to a, uh, a place called Midian. He's about 40 years old. He's disillusioned. He's defeated. He's discouraged. Something's going on. He doesn't know what's really going on. So he seeks God. He goes to a mountain. As he goes to the mountain, he comes upon, imagine this, a fiery burning bush that speaks to him. Come on, guys. The Bible's pretty exciting. Who needs drugs when you got stories like this in the Bible? (laughs) This is incredible. Seriously, people need to read the Bible. It's like, like drama, like fiery burning bushes and stuff. Come on, you can't make this stuff up. And it talks, God talks to Moses through the bush and says, I've called you, and I want you to go back, and I want you to deliver the people uh, that you came from. And Moses is like, I, 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 I can't, 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 can't do that because I'm a murderer. Slow of speech. Eventually, God convinces Moses. Moses becomes convinced that he's called to do that. And so he goes back, and he faces who? He faces the Pharaoh. And while he's there, um, God follows everything that Moses does with signs and wonders. And, of course, we know about the ten plagues. And and after the ninth plague, the big kahuna comes, the tenth plague. And God God says to Moses that if they don't let my people go, then I'm going to kill all the firstborn. But this is what I want you to do. I want you to kill a lamb, a perfect uh, sacrifice, a lamb, a you, and I want you to slaughter it, and I want you to take the blood from that lamb, and I want you to mark the doorposts of your home with, it's basically with a cross, a foreshadowing of what was to come when Jesus sacrificed his life later. For those of you who don't see that connection, it was an Old Testament type and shadow of what was to come through the cross one day, hundreds of years later. And so, but anybody who does not have the blood over the doorposts, the angel of death, when it comes and passes over, those children will be dead. 
So one would live, one would die. It all depended on if the angel passed over based on the blood that was upon the door. And so as you know, that's exactly what happened. Pharaoh released them. He was so upset. He released all the Hebrews. And the Israelites left. And they get to the Red Sea. And their back's up against the wall. And of course, Pharaoh changes his mind again. He chases them. And then God opens up the Red Sea. And then they cross over the Red Sea. And then the Egyptians swallowed up the Red Sea. It's an incredible miracle. They get to the other side. Is this fast or what? We're going through hundreds of years. And then... They, then, they, then Moses prays and he goes to a mountain and all the people stay behind and they do a bunch of stupid stuff and they fall away and they're just, ugh, it's awful. But Moses goes up and he gets the 10 suggestions. No, he gets the 10 commandments and he comes down and he's got these instructions from God. And God is basically, what he's trying to do, he's trying to prepare a new nation that does not know how to live because they've been slaves for hundreds of years. He's trying to show them how to live. In fact, he not only gave them 10 commandments, he gave them 400 other instructions. In fact, when you read like books of the Bible like Leviticus, we see that as like additional laws. No, he's just trying to teach them how to live because they didn't know how to live. They've been slaves for so long. He's trying to show them how to live. One of the things that he tried to teach them to do was to have every single year seven parties. Everybody say, pot it! Seven part. How good is God? Again, this is in the Bible. And so I want you to take time off from work, and I want you to eat till you drop, and I want you to just have a great time with people. Instituted seven parties. One of those parties was Passover. And so Passover was a time when they would do this, and they would quit work, and they would eat and have a blast, and, and it was the equivalent of our 4th of July, okay? It's, it was a celebration of freedom, of freedom, freedom from the Egyptians, and they did this for hundreds and hundreds of years. Did you get all that out of that history lesson? So here's what's happened. That's what Passover is. Exodus 12, look in your notes, verse 26. And when your children, so why do we do this? Because we don't want to forget. We don't want, we want to remember. And then it's going to become even more significant in just a couple of minutes. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean, this Passover thing? What's it all about? Why do we quit working? And why do we have this party? What's this ceremony about where we're reading, you know, this four I wills and this Exodus 6 thing? What's, that, what's going on? It says, then tell them. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when we struck down the Egyptians. Now, our Jewish brothers and sisters have been doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years, but they only have uh, part and parcel of what is incredible part of what God was trying to unfold in our journey as followers of him. So now, I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is, that's been going on for hundreds of years. Let's skip ahead 1,400 years, not just 400 years, but 1,400 years, and the Passover is being celebrated by Jesus, and it was customary for him to do this because he was Jewish. And so he's having Passover with his disciples. We know that as the Last Supper, and now we practice it as communion. This was really the first communion, but they were celebrating Passover. Is everybody still with me? I know I'm talking fast, but is it making sense? Yes or no? Okay. All right. So he's having, he's having the Last Supper. He's having Passover with them, and, but it's, it's about to totally change. It's, he's going to do, do a 180 on them. It's going to totally change. We're in the final week of Jesus' life, known as the Passion Week, and it's the day before he's going to die, and they have no idea. Luke 22, look in your notes. Verse 15. And Jesus said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. They don't know what he's talking about. For I tell you, and this is so key, so key, I will not eat it again until it finds Fulfillment. Everybody say that word. Fulfillment. I'm not going to do this again, he's saying, until it finds fulfillment. 
1,400 years, in other words, have gone by. We've done it the way we've always done it, but we'll never eat it again the same way again because he's telling them, basically, and they don't realize it, I'm the last lamb. I'm the last lamb. There will be no other lamb ever sacrificed again like it was before. For hundreds and hundreds of years when we celebrated Passover, when we came together, we found ourselves a ewe, a, a, a lamb, and we sacrificed it, and we slaughtered it, and we, sh- and we shed its blood, and we ate of that lamb. Never going to have to do that again. Never going to have to happen ever again. I am the last lamb, the last lamb that would ever be slain again. No more sacrifices. And this is important because... Jesus is trying to communicate something that I hope I can do, and that is he needs to be a part of these four promises. And if he's not, it doesn't work. Because for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, people have been trying to work everything out on their own. They've been trying to save themselves. They've been trying to get themselves free from the world and all its influences and all its habits and issues. They've been trying to find out what's my plan and purpose, and they they put their plan sometimes ahead of God's, and they've been trying to find fulfillment in all kinds of other things, power, pleasure, and possessions, and all of it hasn't worked for hundreds and hundreds of years, and Jesus is saying, all those lambs, they won't work, but I'm the last lamb, and it all revolves around me, and it's only going to work unless it's revolved around me. That's what he's getting ready to unpack for them. You can only be saved, freed, restored, and fulfilled in me. You can't have the four cups at work if you don't have Jesus. And then he goes on to say, do this that you're doing, but from now on, do this in remembrance of me. They don't know what he's going to do yet, but he's telling them what's coming. What I'm getting ready to do, always remember it was about me and what I did, not what you did. Remember the work of Jesus. Remember the work of the cross. Today is to remind us all of the work of the cross, that you can't find heaven without Jesus. You can't find the blessing of God on your life and the favor of God without Jesus. You can't find the uniqueness and your purpose and your fulfillment outside of Jesus. Everything, Jesus said this about himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by And through me. And so this cup, he says, is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now you're saying, PD, that all this stuff that happened 1,400 years ago relates to Jesus? Come on. Give me a break. Look in your notes. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 helps me out big time. It says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. There it is. Clear as a bell. The once and for all. The scripture calls it the atonement. It gives us the ability to atone at one with God gives us the ability to be at one with God again. It's pretty clear it wasn't until he came that any of these promises could be fulfilled. Jesus is the one and only Lamb of God. In fact, the Bible uses that term, Lamb of God, to reference Jesus 104 times in the Bible. 25% of the references to Jesus, you guys are in the front row, so you're in the spit zone. 25% of the references to Jesus, he's referred to as the Lamb of God. It's, it's, in fact, a lot of times when you read in the book of Revelation, which is referencing a lot about what's like in heaven, is he's referred to as the Lamb of God. The most popular term in heaven for Jesus will be the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. So I want to talk to you about what the Lamb of God is all about and how it applies to our life. And I want to tell you some things before we celebrate communion today or Passover today. Uh, in John chapter 1, verse 29, we see this term used right in the beginning of his ministry. Look in your word. God. John 1.29 says, the next day, uh, you know, Jesus saw, uh, John, excuse me, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Your Bible may say, if it's King James or New King James, behold. I love that. Behold. 
the Lamb. Behold. It must have been weird to hear that everybody else is hearing somebody referred to as the Lamb of God. What? Behold the hippopotamus. Behold the rhinoceros. I mean, what? What is that all about? But John, because of revelation knowledge, not seminary training, had an information, an inside track on who Jesus was and what his purpose was. And I want to share something with you. It's through relationship with God that sometimes you see things you wouldn't see on your own. You can't have the intellectual ascent that sometimes you're looking for without pursuing God by faith in order to be able to understand and apprehend all that he has for you. That was so right on the money. So, So anyway, when you go back to the original text, Exodus chapter 12, that's where you get these instructions for this progressive meal, this Seder supper. And there's three things about lambs in there that we need to know. And they reference Jesus and they apply so much to what we believe and what we experience today. And I hope I can do a good job with this. But the first thing that you need to know about the lamb is that the lamb, in order for it to be acceptable, had to be perfect. The lamb was perfect. The lamb was perfect. It had to be spotless, blemishless, uh, perfect. In Exodus chapter 12, it says, this is referencing the old, but it applies to the new. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. I like to pause and just kind of connect you to Palm Sunday, a story that some of us, again, know, and you heard me reference this just a little bit, but you remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a donkey. We all celebrated that. We just gave honor where honor was due. But do you know what he did right after that? He did what he always did. He went to church. Jesus went to church. He went to the temple, as was his custom. And when he goes on this particular day, you can look it up on your own, he gets pretty upset because he sees when he goes to church some things happening there that he wasn't happy about at all. He goes in there and he sees priests uh, uh, exchange. Uh, they, were, they were selling things. Do you know what they were selling? They were selling lambs. They were selling lambs. Now, sometimes the reason I do a parenthetical is because sometimes in Christian circles, in religious environments, we get this all twisted and all messed up on what really is okay or not okay in the house of God. But let me, let me just say what was really happening here. They, they were selling lambs. Why is that important? Because the tradition for hundreds and hundreds of years for the Jewish people was before, four days before Passover, you had to go from your own flock, from, from the first fruits of your flock, you had to get a, a lamb, a perfect, spotless, blemishless lamb, and then you would bring that to Passover. Passover, and that's what you would slaughter, or that's what you would sacrifice, and that's what you would prepare in your meal at Passover. You brought your own lamb. But how do you know back then uh, if it was spotless, if it was blemishless, if it was acceptable, if it was perfect enough? You had to present it to the priests, and the priests would inspect that lamb to determine whether it was okay. Well, like any religious environment over time, sometimes without healthy boundaries and and governance and and, and things that God puts in institutes for us and for our protection, these priests got off track and they got corrupted and so people would bring their lamb and they wouldn't accept them and they'd say that's okay I have a lamb for you and I'll sell it to you and so they basically was extortion and Jesus came in there and he sees what is going on here God's house should be a house of prayer not a den of thieves and he pulls a whip I love Jesus he's no wuss he comes out he starts whipping people (laughs) whipping people just just bust out a can of whipping people Can I say that? <laughs> He's upset, okay? It was extortion. And the reason I tell you this is, is that, 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 that the thing about Jesus that's so amazing, what separates us from all the other major religions of the world, is Jesus was the perfect lamb. He's the only, it's the only religion where somebody said or determined or agreed to live a perfect, sinless life. 
It's the only religion that you will see that. There's no other religion that, that boasts uh, their God or, or their, 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 their Messiah lives a perfect, sinless, uh, uh, flawless life. No. Here's why that's so important. Because it has everything to do with your salvation, with your freedom, with your redemption, and with your fulfillment. In order for you to be saved, there's a penalty for your sin. In other words, we're all born sinful. We're all born unclean. Say, no, I'm not. Do you have kids? Did you have to teach your kids to do wrong, or do they inherently, genetically, demonically, whatever you want to say, just start misbehaving? They learn every rebellious term, just, this comes out of their nature. Why? Because there's a sinful nature that has to be converted or, or saved by a godly nature, all right? And so that's, a, that's part of this. So that can't, how does that, how does that sinful nature get changed? It has to encounter a perfect person. Only the perfect can undo the imperfect. Only the clean can save the unclean. Unclean can't save clean. Unclean, excuse me, unclean can't save unclean. Clean can only save or deliver the clean. Are you out there? And so that's what Jesus did. He lived a perfect life and can do that, and only that can be done as a lamb. Look at this in your notes. 1 Peter 1 says this, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus is that perfect lamb. He's the only one who qualifies, therefore, to rescue you, to redeem you, and to save you. Number two, the lamb was sacrificed. The lamb was sacrificed. That's actually a very nice term, very kind way of saying it. A better way to say it is not even killed or murdered. It's slaughtered. Slaughtered. Now, this is going to be the most sober part of the message, and so I apologize up front if this is too graphic for you, but I felt like it was necessary in a way. But Exodus 12, 6 says, take care of them, talking about these lambs, until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Now, I, I thought about this yesterday when I was preparing, like, am I going to insert this? Am I going to talk about this? Because I've taught about it before. But... I pause just because I like to have a good time in church. I like to celebrate. I like to have fun. I like to laugh. I like to carry on and all those kind of things. But, but, but when you talk about the work of the cross, it requires a certain sobriety, a certain seriousness of it. And as Christians, we just have this sometimes indifference and inability to connect with the work of the cross. And all I can pray by the very anointing of God is that you could connect with what Jesus Christ did for you on Calvary 2,000 years ago. That is why we celebrate the Passover and communion, is to remember part of it is his sacrifice. Because he was slaughtered. He was slaughtered. Jesus didn't die on the cross so we could say, amen, let's go to Piccadilly. <laughs> but, that, but, that is, but that is the way we are as American Christians, are we not? We're quick to disconnect from the reality of what Jesus did for us. But God and his love for you, think about this. He picked a time in human history to send his son into the earth. What I mean by that is God is infinite. He has no time restraints. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He sees all things. He sees eternally. So he can look at the past, the present, and the future, and he can say, what would be the best time to send my son to, to, on this mission or assignment? I'm not going to send him now when the worst kind of death would be, at worst, lethal injection. No, I'm going to send him in the most difficult time in human history when capital punishment was the most graphic, the most horrible and heinous of all. I'm going to send them to the time of crucifixions when people weren't killed, weren't murdered, they, were, they weren't sacrificed, 
They were slaughtered. They were slaughtered. It's huge. And this is why I take offense to the notion that people who serve Christ are a bunch of wusses and wimps. My God was strong. My God was strong. Very strong. And when he was beaten and when he was scourged for me, he didn't whimper a word. Not a word came out of his mouth. He was strong. He was strong when they brutalized him. And the prophet Isaiah, 500 years before his death, this is another reason that I serve Jesus, is because he foretold what would happen through his through his servants, through his seers, through his prophets. And so there are hundreds of fulfilled prophecies in the scriptures, but this is one of the most famous ones of all. It's known as the divine exchange when he took all that was on humanity and he put it on one perfect human and sacrificed, slaughtered for you and for me. In Isaiah 53, 5, it's called like the four wounds. This is what he did for you. Look in your notes. It says, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. Those are our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's our continuous sin our freedom bondage areas. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, or you could say stripes, or you could say scourging and whipping, we are healed. These are the four wounds of the cross. This is what Jesus did for you and for me. This was what we call Good Friday. Was, it, was, it was the worst. His, wor- his first day was his worst day. So when you face your worst day, you know he did it first. He paid for it. All your debt, all your sin, with a sacrifice of his life, a slaughtering of his own body and flesh. He paid for it. He faced the devil, and he conquered the grave. We'll talk about that next week. He faced the worst day possible. So whatever your worst day is, Jesus did worse than that. I can promise you that. He was scourged. He was whipped with a cat and nine tails, with strands of leather, with glass, and and with bone, and with metal inside them and he was whipped 39 times the law was 40 was illegal but most people didn't even get to 39 but jesus took all 39 13 across one side of his back up over his trapezius muscle pulled along the side and they ripped flesh and muscle and then 13 on the other side of his trapezius muscle ripped it all the way down his back and then another 13 on the back of the most sensitive part of your body your your back of your thighs your hamstrings and just tore him to shreds and then they flipped him over you know, and then later on, the, 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 the guards, they took him, you know, and they had their way with him, and they took him what's called the praetorium. And some people believe there, there could have been as many as a thousand soldiers that were down here in this kind of locker room type atmosphere, and they, and they mocked him, and they insulted him. And, and, and some of you would say, you know, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me, but we all know that words hurt bad. And they said, all manner of emotional abuse that you could, you know, if you, you know, if you think you're this, if you think you're that, come on, say, all these things that they could possibly, whatever those nerves are for you, Jesus faced all those things himself in the locker room of hell. And he did that for you. Thank you, God. And then these guys, they, they made a homemade crown out of thorns. And some people say, and historians say that the, the thorns were four inches thick. And they wrapped them all together. And they put those on his head. And they pressed them into his skull until he, until he just bled from pressure. And the historians record that blood rushed through the center of his brain where there was so much pressure on his mind. He had the migraine of all migraines. And he was punished there. So why? 
Why did he have that on his head? So you could have peace of mind. So when you're anxious and when you're worried and when you're afraid and when you're depressed, whatever it is that's on your mind, now you can apprehend that promise by faith and realize that you can have peace of mind, that you can have the mind of Christ, that Isaiah says he'll keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, on thee. That's what can happen. He was pierced for your transgressions, pierced for your transgressions. He was nailed to a cross on Golgotha. He took these spikes, and they didn't go into this part of his hand because they knew when you hung from this part that you would just rip, the flesh would just rip away from your hands and for your feet. They put it through the bone so that you would hang there in utter agony, and they would tip you kind of at an angle and bend your legs and put a little thing under your feet. And what would happen is eventually as you're hanging there, they did, by the way, they didn't want you to die from bleeding out. They wanted you to die from suffocation. And so as you're hanging there, eventually the, the, sh- the sockets in your shoulder would give way and you would fall. And as you fall, your, your lungs would collapse so you couldn't breathe. And in order to get air, you would have to push up with your legs against that, that, that thorny, prickly, you know, tree behind your back against all the blood and, and the exposed muscle and bone on your back. <sighs> Take another breath of air. <sighs> You fall down again, and then your lungs would begin to collapse, and you did it again and again. For six hours, he did that. Never whimpered a word. He was pierced for your transgressions. Not his, yours, mine. And then many believed he breathed his last somewhere, or he said it's finished around 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And normally the Romans couldn't take the agony of even watching this themselves, as brutal as they were. And so they would come along with the people who were being crucified and they would break their legs. So they would stop going up and down, gasping for it. They couldn't take it anymore. But with Jesus, they didn't do that. And it was prophesied hundreds of years before that not a bone in his body would be broken. And historians record that that's how they found his body, that not a bone was broken. And instead what they did was they took a spear, and in order to ensure that he was for sure dead, they pierced his side all the way through his heart. And the Bible says that water and blood flowed. And scientists believe that in order for that to happen, that your heart would have to burst. See, Jesus died of a broken heart. So whatever you've gone through, he already did that. He already did that. For you, for me. He carried the weight of our sin. The lamb was slaughtered. You need to be reminded. This is why we give him everything. This is why I do what I do. This is why you should do what he wants you to do. Because he gave everything for you. I owe him everything because of that. And so do you. The third thing is, the lamb was shared. It was shared. These, again, were the final instructions to us on how to have Passover in Exodus 12. This is powerful. It says, if any, if any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with the nearest neighbor. It was actually law that you had to consume the entire lamb. It was the law. You could not, not consume the whole lamb. Everything had to be eaten. No leftovers. Everybody say no leftovers. Why? Because, because this has future implications to us as a church today. Again, everything you see in the old, it has some, it has some importance in the new. But the lamb must be totally consumed. Think about that in the church context today. We, as the body of Christ, are to share the lamb, and it must be totally consumed. 
Back then, they would have a lamb, and it would always be too much for one family, for one household. The lamb that they would purchase, the lamb that they would receive. And so they'd invite their neighbors and their coworkers and, and all the people that were nearby in their community to come and share the lamb to be sure that in that house, every bit of the lamb was consumed. And I can assure you that the lamb of God is not being completely consumed by just the people who are in this house, but that the lamb of God must be shared beyond the four walls of this church. And I want to say something to you that's just a strong feeling that I have sometimes about New England churches. Am I worked up or what? Jesus, help me. But a lot of times in New England churches, people have, they're small-minded. They're so small-minded. It's despicable. See, I don't care about having a big church for me. I don't. But there's way too much lamb in this house for us. And just us, for us four and no more. We need to have more people that are coming to the table where we share the lamb with them. We need to have more place settings. And if, there's, if, there's, if every seat is filled, then we need to have more seats at another table in another service. And if all those seats get filled at that table, then we need to have another campus and another look. Come on, church. Do you get what I'm saying to you? We're supposed to share the lamb. All of it has to be consumed. Every single bit of it has to be given away. And maybe you're here today and you've never yourself experienced a lamb, heard about what this whole thing is all about. I want you to, I want you to do something. Would you just close your eyes just for a second? Because I feel the Spirit of God, God is here right now already in full effect. Please, just honor the person to your right or to your left. Please, please, I beg you. Just, just close your eyes. Let somebody have their own encounter with God right now. Who, who is here today, maybe listening online, who's here today that's never You've never heard, had the lamb shared with you like that. You never knew what Jesus, the lamb of God, did for you. And, and now you didn't just hear it through some TV evangelist or some quick little track you read one day or through a secondhand story. No, for some reason today, the God of this world has been defeated and you can see the God who loves you and gave himself for you. And you want to know him personally. You want to, you want the lamb of God in your life. When you receive the lamb by faith, grace through faith, it's a simple prayer. You just invite him in your heart as a simple prayer. I don't save you, Jesus. I'm just, I'm just leading you to him. I've met him and I want you to meet him. But when you, when you say that you want that lamb, that starts a journey that literally cannot, cannot be fulfilled in any other way. Your journey, whatever you're trying to do, your frustrations will continue. Your, your issues will continue. The only way that you'll turn those things around and see true and lasting joy and fulfillment and peace and, and freedom is in this relationship. But you have to receive that lamb. If you've never received the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, into your life to be your savior, but also your Lord, the one that you say... I turn it over to you. If that's you, and you know that's you, don't wait another minute. I want you to raise your hand good and high. I'm not going to call you out. I just want you to tell Jesus that's me. God bless you. 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 Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Is there anybody else? I don't want to miss anybody. Good and high. God bless you over there. Thank you. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you. Yes, all the way in the back. Thank you so much. That's so great. You can put your hands down. Thank you, Jesus. Good job. So proud of you. That's so awesome. So awesome. 
This is what I want to do. I want to pray with you right now. And then we're going to have communion. And when you take communion, it's going to be a whole nother level because you're going to see the, the, the lamb in a whole nother way because you've invited Jesus into your life. And maybe you're here today and you've, you've been saved for many years. Maybe you just need to say this prayer just to refresh your walk with God. But would you just say this with me? Those that raised your hand and those of you that are here, would you say, Jesus, thank you so much for dying on the cross for me. I don't deserve it. But yet I believe that you did it for me, for my sins. Today, I see what you did. And today, I give you my life, my whole life. Come live in me. Change me by your Holy Spirit. Make me the kind of person that you want me to be, ever-increasing glory, mirroring who you are in my life, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen and amen. Come on, let's give the Lord a big hand clap. All those decisions, that is so awesome. We're going to take, we're gonna take uh, Passover communion right now together. And listen, we're going to sing this song. It is so powerful. It's just literally, it's like, it's like the bow on this entire message. And I just pray that as you take these elements, that God speak to you by his Holy Spirit. You, you come as the ushers lead you. At any point in time during the song, once you've got your elements at your seat, you take those elements as you see fit. You, you do them uh, on your own, right there at your seat. You're having communion, you and God. We have an open table. Everybody is welcome. I'm going to pray over these elements and bless them, and then you come and you receive them. I've already spoken on what it's all about, and I just believe God is going to do a mighty work in you. Would you bow your heads let me pray for you? Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I pray that an increased anointing on the communion experience today. Lord, we do this in remembrance of you. I pray that it is like, it's literally like you died last week. It's so fresh. It's so fresh. Literally, we can see what you did for us afresh and anew today. And I pray as we come, Lord, that we have an encounter and experience with the Lamb of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys can stand to your feet and we're going to work. I want to give you a little bit of homework today before you go home. Everybody say, I love homework. Oh, you didn't sound very convincing right there. But I want to prepare you for the greatest weekend in the Christian experience, which is coming up next week. That is Easter, amen? And this is the greatest opportunity to give the Lamb of God away, to share the Lamb of God with other people. By far, bar none, 20% of the people that you would ask on any given Sunday would say yes, but on Easter weekend, 84% of the people that you ask will say yes. How many know that if you were in sales, that would be some good odds? Let me tell you something. You are in sales. You are a messenger of Jesus Christ. He has called you to be an ambassador for him. And so I want to encourage you to give away what God has given you. It's simple. You don't hit him over the head with a Bible and quote a bunch of Old Testament stuff, you know. Don't be a weirdo. But did you think this could help somebody? Yes or no? People need to know. And they won't know unless you tell them. So I just want to encourage you to share the lamp. There's three things I want to give you. For those of you who are OCD, you're like, wait a second. I had three more fill in the blanks. I can't leave yet. And once he gives me that final one, honey, I'm going to get the kids and I'm off to Piccadilly. I know how you roll, so here it comes, okay? I want to ask you seriously, with all sincerity, I want to ask you to pray this week for Easter, the Easter services. I want them to be special. I want them to be like today, but take it up. And I don't want to live on yesterday's bread. I, this is awesome. This has been an incredible service, an incredible weekend. A whole bunch of stuff, awesome stuff happened. But we, we want fresh bread on, on, on Easter Sunday, amen? And we need to pray for that. You know why you need to pray? You need to pray that, that 
the veil come off their eyes. Here's what it says in the word. It says 1 Corinthians 4, 4. It says the God of this age. You know who that is? That's Satan. That's not, that's not, that's not Jesus. That's Satan. Small g, the God of this age. What has he done? He has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Why do we pray? We don't pray to tell people, you know, to, to try to control people. That's witchcraft. We tell, we pray to ask the Holy Spirit to do battle for us, to get devils, the devil's blindfolds off people's eyes so they can see. Many people have heard the gospel. They haven't seen the gospel. And so some of you came today, you've heard about communion, you've heard about Passover, but today you saw it. You saw it, many of you at least, amen? And so that's what we want to pray, that the God of this world, that he would be released. And so we pray for souls. And I'm asking you to take time out in your schedule and pray. Put it in your phone, get up 10 minutes early every day and pray for souls. And pray that God of this world, uh, just get his hands off those pre-believers, as I like to say, because they don't know what they, what they need to know. But they're going to be happy when they know. Amen? So you pray about that. And listen, I'm going to do another thing that I did in the last service, and I didn't tell anybody about this but uh, in advance. But my son and I, we pray every Wednesday morning at 6.30 for you and for the church and for our community. And we pray for the supernatural, and we pray for souls, and we pray for sound minds. We pray for, for a move of God and for a revival. If you want to be here and pray with us for Easter, be here 6.30 to 7.30. At 7.31, don't talk to me. I'm going to be walking out the door right while you're talking to me. So it's one hour because I'm going to the gym, okay? It's 7.30, all right? 7.31, I'm in my car. So if you're talking, I'm gone, I'm gone, okay? So it'll be one hour, all right? Why am I telling you we need to pray? Because preaching and coffee won't save people. People need to encounter God. They need to encounter God, okay? Here's the next thing. You need to invite people. So we're gonna pray, everybody say pray. And then we're gonna invite people to church, all right? Again, it's the best time to do so. Uh, they, people won't know. Romans says this. It says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God does that. But who can ask them Who can ask them to save them unless they believe in him? So that's their job. And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? You are the paper boy and the paper girl. You're the delivery system. So when I say invite people to church, I'm not saying, you know, take one of the postcards and slip it in the crack of their window and run. That's what I've seen y'all. I've seen you out there. You know what I mean? Maybe if I put this in the bathroom above the urinal. Oh my gosh, leave! No. Hand them a postcard and say, hey, we've been friends a long time. You know, I, I've never, as far, as far as I know, I've never invited you to my church. But it's not like what you think. It would be amazing. Uh, I would love for you to join. What are you doing on Easter? 84% chance of a yes. What are you doing on Easter? This is what makes it even better. You got to do it. You got to do it right. Do it with a postcard, do it with a resource, do it, think about what you're going to say and say, hey, listen, I'll meet you at church. Which service would you like to go to? I'll be there. We can have a cup of coffee. By the way, it's free. It's Starbucks. It's in the common. It's awesome. I'll get there early. Afterwards, if you don't have plans, I'll take you to lunch. If you can't afford to take them to lunch, we'll help you. Okay, but invest in people. Invite and invest people. Amen? And the last thing is participate. I love this point. 30 years plus ago, I really surrendered my life to Christ. And let me just say this real fast. I was in a church like this, and honestly, there was a little bit, a lot of it maybe, that kind of freaked me out. And I was the pastor's son. <laughs> and I looked around, and I'm thinking, these people are really into this, and they're worshiping God, and they're this, and they're that, and their hands are raised, and they're reading their Bibles, and they're underlining, and there's highlighters in their back pocket, and they're serious. And it kind of freaked me out. But on the other hand, I wish I was like that. I wanted some of that. And something about this 
the participation of the people was compelling. It drew me in. It changed the way I thought. And can I tell you, that's what it's going to be like in heaven. Look in your notes. Revelation 5, it says, in a loud voice, they sang, worthy is the lamb. Some people say, when they come to connect, the music's too loud. Well, you're going to hate heaven. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Heaven is a celebration of God's people loving God. Church should be the same way. And when people do that, it draws people in. The Bible tells us if we lift Jesus higher, he'll draw all men unto himself. When you draw near to God, he will draw what? Near to you. He inhabits what? The praises of his people. So I'm encouraging you next week, however you come to church, participate. Whatever level you were going to be on, let's take it to an HNL. Let's go to a home other level. Amen? Give somebody a high five to you, right to your left. Say, it's been great being with you today. I'll see you guys next Sunday, Easter Sunday. It's going to be off the chain. Love you guys. Have a great Sunday.